He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, December 5, 2020. This show dedicated to Jenna Ellis, personal attorney to President Donald J. Trump. I knew you when, Jenna. So did Stephanie Stout, my first guest. And we spoke about you to the New York Times this week because we are dismayed by the things you are saying and tweeting because it's destroying democracy in America. And we are Americans. Another great American, Jeff Mason. Did you know he's from Metro Denver? He's the Reuters White House correspondent who Donald Trump ridicules. But Jeff Mason gets the better of Donald Trump because he is indefatigable. He's my second guest after Stephanie Stout and then wait till you hear Representative Stephen Woodrow, also in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This attorney is going to go far. He's a Denver rep right now, but he's outspoken. He's smart. And you will hear it for yourself. My troubadour, Dave Gunders, outdoes himself. He has a song called Full-Time Job, Just to Keep Him Happy. It's like Donald Trump, the job Jenna Ellis has to do for our president. What a miserable job. But there are limits, Jenna. It's unethical to be dishonest. The election was not rigged. Here's Stephanie Stout, who knows Jenna Ellis very well. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, I love doing this show. I get to meet such interesting people. Stephanie Stout is one of them. I read about her in the New York Times, an article about Jenna Ellis. They quoted me as well because I know Jenna, but not nearly as well as Stephanie Stout. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Let's make sure you're qualified to be in the lawyer's lounge. Are you indeed a Colorado lawyer? I have been for the last 20 years and still am. Tell us a little about yourself. I spent a little bit of my childhood in Denver when my father was doing his internship and residency at Fitzsimmons Army Hospital. And so when it was time to pick a place to put down roots, I came back and started at the Colorado Public Defender's Office in 2000 after I got out of law school at Baylor. And I was there for about 11 years, left there in February of 2011 and started a private practice and have been in private practice in Greeley ever since. What were your assignments in the PD's office up there in Weld County? Yes, I started in misdemeanor and juvenile court. And then after about a year, I moved into felony court where I spent the rest of my time. After a couple of years, I started getting a lot of the sexual assault cases and still specialize in felony sexual assault defense, along with other felonies. Good for you. They have a 
great old courthouse there. Is it still functioning well? I can't imagine during COVID times it's that great. It's kind of empty right now, but we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of that courthouse, and it is still um, active and has courtrooms, active courtrooms in it. It's a, it is a beautiful building and has been really remarkably taken care of, and it's also haunted, which is really fun. But if anybody's ever in the Greeley area, it is definitely worth going and looking at because it is an extraordinary building. I hear your joyous Greeley family in the background. Yeah, you can hear uh, my two Shelties, Brady and Brady and Gideon, who have been locked in another room. So hopefully I get a little peace and that's not working so well. <laughs> well, it's so nice for you to do this. You are a very busy, active, successful, Greeley trial attorney. And you've taken time on this Friday night to talk about our colleague, Jenna Ellis. She described us that way on Twitter. and I think she described us as her jealous colleagues. But, well, uh, that yeah. too. But let's start with the <laughs> colleagues part, because I was a colleague of hers on the radio, although she didn't have a paying gig at KNUS. I let her fill in for me a time or two, and she was definitely a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, just like you are. But how were you a colleague of Jenna? She was at the Weld County District Attorney's Office starting in about 2012. I was a defense attorney, and so I, I knew her there. I didn't really have cases against her because she was prosecuting pretty minor misdemeanor cases for the six or seven months that she was there, and I don't do a whole lot of misdemeanor cases. But I knew her because it's a pretty small group of people who practice in Weld County, and you get to know everybody. And so then after she left, she went into private practice with a man named Brandon Marinoff, and she started taking some felony cases. And so she would reach out every once in a while and ask for my input or some guidance on a case. And then after she left Marinoff's office after a few months, she went to work for a firm called O'Malley in Fort Collins. And she was there for a few months. When she left the O'Malley firm, she was kind of looking for a place to land, and she landed with another local firm, but she had a case that she wanted to bring with her, which was a pretty major case. It was an attempted murder case, and the person that she was affiliated with, she wasn't really working for him, but she was affiliated with his office, and he said, no, we are not an attempted murder firm and you're not an attempted murder attorney. So if you bring this case with you, one of the requirements is that you have to bring in Stephanie on this case and it will be her case. You can work on it as long as she wants you to, but it'll be her case. And so that that was the first time that I really worked closely with her was on that case. But I had helped her out with some things before then, just when she needed some advice on, you know, is this a good, is this a good offer? What should I do with this? Do I have an issue here? You know, just minor things like that. Now that's a good, well-told story. And I can't help but notice that Jenna jumps around a lot. One minute she in does. the radio world, she was on <laughs> KLZ and then she'd be over somewhere else. And I'd hear about one job and then another, but I'm not part of the Greeley world. Isn't that a lot of hopping around? Who goes to a DA's yeah. office and just stays for six months? People who weren't very well suited to be DA's. She was fired from the Weld County DA's office. Now, so, wait a minute. I just heard from her that she stood up for principal and she wouldn't go along with some dastardly decision by her higher ups. Isn't that what she's telling the media? 
That is what she's telling the media. I'm not sure that I believe that, but um, that is what she's telling the media. Regardless of what she did, she was fired after about six or seven months for whatever reason. Who was the Walt County DA? I believe that was still when Ken Buck was there. That would have been 2012. So yeah, Ken Buck was still uh, early 2013. So he hadn't been elected to Congress yet. So that was now Congressman Ken Buck was our um, elected DA at the time. I've heard of him. And I elbowed him in basketball games back in the day, and he doesn't forget it. But that's interesting that he would have knowledge about the truth, because Jenna is spinning a different story. How come she kept moving from one law firm to another in Greeley? I'm not sure. You know, I think that the problem with figuring out why she kept moving is that she never tells the truth as to why. She always spins it in a way that's best for her. So I don't know that anybody really knows. I, I think that Part of the problem that I saw, and I don't know if this was part of why she left, but part of the problem that I saw is that Jenna always wanted to be bigger and better and more important. And I think she just kept trying to reach for that and and tried to just stay she's done you know, one step ahead of the game. She's done it. She's the personal attorney for the president of the United States. I know. Who would have thought? I would not have thought that. I would never have thought we would have a president quite like this. Yeah. If you had told me when I was in law school that you, know, you are going to work with someone who is eventually going to be personal counsel to the president of the United States, and I had looked at all of the brilliant lawyers that I've had an opportunity to know, her name would not have been the one that I would have thought. It would not have made the list. I, I just, if you had told me, Pick one of these lawyers that you've worked with, and they're going to end up being in the Oval Office. This is not the one that I would have picked. Let's go back to happier times, because Jenna, for whatever you think of her abilities to be a lawyer, and I'm the guy who got quoted in the New York Times that she had scant legal accomplishments or something like that, but I chose the word scant. Would you agree with that? I would. I would. And, you know, she hasn't been in a courtroom in the last four or five years. Right. But she has been in the Oval Office. And, she sure uh, has. And, and so we're trying to figure it out. But I liked her. You know, she was a reliable foil for me because I'm an independent. And where I was situated on right wing radio, it was good to argue with the right winger. And she and I would have good debates about various things. I also like that she disdained Donald Trump. That was unusual on Denver Trump radio for a while before he got elected. That was her attitude. So I like Jenna. And she always treated me with respect. I treated her with respect. And wasn't there a point in time when you liked her okay and you thought, yeah. well, maybe she's not Clarence Darrow, but she's okay? I mentored her. And I tried to find the Facebook post where she said what a great mentor I was after she called me names on Twitter recently. I tried to find that and, and it's gone. But you know, I, I was one of her mentors and I enjoy mentoring young lawyers. It's part of the job that I think is the most rewarding. And I, I liked her until I didn't. So tell us how it fell apart. Tell us about the relationship. You, you liked her because she was... I imagine she was pleasant to you, respectful, saying, Very. wow, I could learn a lot from you. And, Very. and that's kind of flattering to older lawyers like us. Yeah. 
she had this attempted murder case that she brought into this practice with her and the attorney that that she was talking to said you know you you're not bringing that case into this office without bringing stephanie on the case because you don't have the ability to do that and he was real clear with her he was like neither do i so i came onto the case and a wonderful client. He's a friend at this point, just a really great guy. He was wrongly accused of an attempted murder. He got into a bar fight and he got jumped by a couple of guys in the bathroom of a bar and they beat the tar out of him. And he uh, tried to struggle back and one of them had a knife that they dropped and, and as he was flailing, he picked it up and just flailed while they were on top of him banging his head into the ground. He looked horrible at the end of this. And so she had gotten this case and she kind of oversold herself to him and had promised him that if he hired her and paid her enough that she'd get the case, that at least the attempted murder dismissed at the preliminary hearing, which didn't happen. So I came on the case. Time out, because I was a prosecutor for 16 years. I never lost a preliminary hearing. And that's no great <laughs> achievement because DAs are not supposed to lose at preliminary right. hearings. So she promised this client that she was going to win it at preliminary hearing? She promised that she would at least get the attempted murder count dismissed at preliminary hearing. He was also charged with first degree assault and all of the lessers that you see in an assault case like that. But yeah, she had told him that he shouldn't worry at all. And this is stuff that he's told me since the whole thing happened, that he shouldn't worry at all that the, the attempted murder count would be gone at preliminary hearing. And of course, that didn't happen. And and you and I both know that that's rare. I, I think in 20 years, I've maybe gotten two cases dismissed at preliminary hearing. I mean, You're it's rare. Good. You're good. And, I, um, I think I've done it as a defense attorney a time or two, but it's very rare. Yeah, it's rare. So that didn't happen. But he didn't know because he hadn't he hadn't been in the system. He didn't know. And so I came onto the case and he saw the difference in how I had handled the case and how she had handled the case. And we did a motions hearing and she spent the entire motions hearing on her phone, probably on Twitter, definitely on Facebook, not paying attention. And so he met with me about a week later and he was like, why, why do we have her on the case? And I said, I don't know. You're the one who hired her. And he said, well, I, I don't think we need her on the case. And I said, well, that's 100% your decision. And if you don't want her, then you can tell her that you don't want her. And so he did. He wrote her a letter and said, I'm going to stick with Stephanie and I, I don't want you on the case anymore. And um, she never spoke to me again. She deleted me from all her social media, which, you know, is very important to her the next day and never spoke to me again. Wow. How did the trial turn out? I won. We had to take it to two different trials. In the first trial, the jury acquitted him, found him not guilty of the attempted murder, but they hung on the lesser charges. And the district attorney wouldn't agree to really anything. And so we took it to a second trial on the first degree assault and the lesser charges. And at that trial, they found him not guilty of all of the, all of the rest of the counts. So That's, he was acquitted of everything. And he's a great guy. He deserved every bit of that acquittal. I bet he thinks he, you're a great woman. Well, I, I hope so. He is a wonderful guy. He has a wonderful family and he absolutely was innocent of what he was being accused of. And so it, it could not have could not have happened for a nicer guy. Good for you. I want you to mentor me. <laughs>
anyway, so did you get along with Jenna? Did you know about her personal life? I interviewed her a time or two. My podcasts are down. About two or three weeks ago, I got contacted by CNN. They said, hey, Jenna Ellis used to fill in for you, right? I said, yes. They said, do you have the podcasts? I said, no. Where can we get them? I said, well, Kanye West is hiding them from me and my fans. And so I had that discussion. Then Jenna and I got into it a little over Twitter, just with DMs, not over public Twitter, but direct messages. I'll get back to that. But I just knew that Jenna was going all in for Donald Trump. I watched it happen. What were you thinking as you watched it happen? Well, I remember in 2016 when she wasn't really supporting him. And then when he got the nomination, she she really shifted pretty quickly. And that was about the same time that we were doing that case. And I remember her saying, because a, a mutual friend asked her, you know, why are you why are you supporting him? And and her answer was, because I think he's the only candidate who will keep me safe. And I never really I never really got a chance to find out what she meant by that. But I I found it kind of puzzling. I've always found it a little hard to understand because she is a she is a very vocal evangelical Christian. And I've always found it a little puzzling how evangelical Christians support Donald Trump, who I I think is probably the least Christ like person I've ever seen. So I've never really understood how they how they justify that. I don't don't know how he justifies it. I don't generally wade into those waters being a Jewish guy and not really understanding Christianity, etc. But I knew that Jenna was very pro-life. She espoused that position. And like a lot of people, they look at the holy threesome of Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, especially Amy Coney Barrett, and they say, Donald Trump is the man of our dreams. He's delivered. Yeah. And I I was a little surprised about her support of Amy Amy Coney Barrett because she's Catholic. And and Jenna had had expressed to me and members of my office that she doesn't actually believe that Catholics are are real Christians. What? Now, help you understand this. (laughs) I have no idea. I didn't really push it much, but she told a member of my staff that one day. And so, it just kind of showed me that she's willing to support whatever she has to support to get what she wants, that she she's kind of she seems like she'll do whatever she has to do to to get what's right for her. I'm trying to figure out where Jenna's coming from. And, and ultimately, I said it doesn't matter because what she's doing is so destructive to democracy and to my family. But still, I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt because I was friendly with her and I always try to treat Colorado lawyers with respect and courtesy and professionalism. And I'm thinking, well, what's behind Jenna's behavior? Wasn't she homeschooled growing up? Where did she grow up? She grew up in one of the Denver suburbs. I'm not sure where, but Denver area. When you first met her, was she single or married? She was single. And then did she get married? She did. She did. She married a man who was from Dublin, Ireland, who she had met on social media. I think I think a friend of hers had introduced her to him on social media and they had a long distance relationship for a few months. And then he flew over here and they got married on Valentine's Day. 
Then they separated around May or June of that same year. And she filed for invalidity basically in annulment because it had been less than six months. Yeah, I was at the wedding on Valentine's Day. Was that granted? Do you know? Yes, it was. So the first marriage got annulled? Did she yes. get, has she been married again? Yeah. Yeah, what? she has. I think I got invited to that first wedding. I didn't go. And then I read on her Facebook how it fell apart. I felt bad for her. I really did. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think they knew each other very well. It just didn't seem to be the right match for either one of them. And he went back to Ireland. And my understanding is he's still in Ireland. I, I don't know. I hope to go to Ireland someday. And I guess if I do, I'll try to try to go see one of his gigs. He was a, an Irish pub singer. Were they on the same page insofar as evangelical Christianity? No, he was Roman Catholic and she's not. And uh, my understanding is that they had a lot of differences and it just didn't work. And it was really, it was very apparent pretty quick because it was only a few months before they split up. And I think it was, it was the wrong situation for both of them. Well, it's a damn shame. Thank God for yeah. annulment. At least she's happily married now, right? I'm not sure. I have heard, and I don't know. I have heard that this marriage hasn't really worked out either, but what? I don't know because I, I, I don't keep up with her, but I've heard that this one hasn't really panned out the way she thought it would either. And I, I don't know what's happened in this one at all. Who did she marry this next time? His name is David Reeves, and he is a creation scientist. He has a ministry that preaches about creationism. Now, I think that might have been the marriage I got invited to. That anyway. one was out of state, but he... Um, I, I used his name because I wrote an article that I included Jenna. I write for the Colorado Sun, and I was talking about people with increased prominence from Colorado given the Donald Trump impeachment, and I used her name Jenna Ellis Reeves, because I looked yeah. up to make sure everybody's bar number, I listed them in that order. Yeah, she used the name Reeves for about four or five months. And then right about the same time that she got the job with the Trump campaign, she dropped the Reeves from her name and hasn't used it since. And her Twitter at the same time had said, you know, it had all of her credentials and it said wife to David Reeves and his said husband to Jenna Ellis Reeves. And both of them dropped that, which is just, you know, that's my speculation as to why I don't think that really worked out so well, because she, she dropped his last name and, and I have no idea what's going on with any of that. Sometimes. They may be happily married and he just decided that, or she just decided she was going to use her maiden name. I don't know. I don't know either. But I do know that sometimes the third marriage is the charm. Look at Donald Trump and the love he shares with Melania. Oh, yes. It's it's really touching, isn't it? It, it, it gets to me. Donald <laughs> Trump gets to me. And yeah. you and I were quoted in the New York Times article. And I'll tell you why I chose to participate. One, I told Jenna that I was going to go public because I was getting pissed. If you don't mind, can I read to you what happened? Sure. I read one tweet. Are you on Twitter? Do you see what she yeah. tweets? Mm -hmm. Yeah, occasionally. I, I don't obsess on it, but I'll occasionally pop over I there. I sometimes get obsessed with how terrible Donald Trump is for this country, especially this big lie about the election being rigged. That's a prescription oh, yeah. for disaster for democracy, for my children, for my dogs. Jenna Ellis tweets this on November 21, 2020. Twitter had to put up this claim about election fraud is disputed. She tweets this. 
no one really believes this election was honest. It was all capital letters stolen, and we all know it. That's why they're scared. 11.33 p.m. on November 21. I don't know what I was doing that day, but I just had had enough because I don't like it. I just expressed why. And I went to my personal DMs with her, and I saw that I'm the guy who told her on August 9, 2018, that Donald Trump had just tweeted about her. And then she responded, what? No, then she responded, oh, my God, OMG. And then I said, was I the first to tell you? She said, my phone blew up seconds after he posted it, double exclamation point. And then she tweets on August 10, 2018, I was thinking about you the other day, though, and missing being on air with you and Dan. Hope all is well. Smiley face. She's big on emojis. You have to admit that. She's mastered oh, yeah. emoji. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I got pissed as a Colorado lawyer late at night. Jenna Ellis is saying everybody knows that the election was rigged. And I write her, who is we? Those in Trump cult? You, Jen Ellis, are the ones trying to steal an American election and destroy a democracy. I know you well, but never thought you would go this low. But you have. Sad. You had it right when you called Trump amoral. What are you now? I am getting super pissed at you personally. And then I thought about that, and I tweeted a minute later, using language that I thought was appropriate, because I do think it's tied somehow to her Christianity or whatever she believes. And I tweeted to her, not to the public, just to her, repent. I don't normally tell people to repent. I said, repent, please, for the sake of my children and my country. Trump is toxic. And then she decided to respond to me on November 22nd. She writes, this is what good friends look like. And then she has a love emoji. They stand up and also speak truth. I'm grateful to have good friends like Dan Bongino and many others who are fighters too. We stand for freedom in America. I couldn't care less what the swamp thinks. And then I wrote back, I'm not the swamp. I was your friend. You are hurting America. That hurts me and my family. Please stop. Putin may be pleased. I'm pissed at you. And I DM you so as not to talk trash about you in public. But that will not last forever. Conspiracy theories lead inevitably to bigotry and disaster. Remember World War II. Stop your big lie now. And I used an exclamation point. And thank you, Stephanie Stop, for letting me get that off my chest. So at least I warned her back on November 22 that I was going to speak out against her. Yeah, I share your outrage as to what she's doing, because I think that this whole thing that she and Trump and Rudy Giuliani are doing, it's going to hurt our democracy. It's already hurting our democracy. It's convincing. They've convinced millions of people that this country doesn't work. And they're doing it based on lies. I'm glad you contacted her. I, I have not had contact with her in years. And 
I'm not sure she would welcome contact from me. I think she, you know, she wrote me off a long time ago, but I, I think you're right. You know, that this is hurting all of us. It's hurting my children. It's hurting the country that we live in and it needs to stop. What is Jenna doing? Why is she doing this? I think she's enjoying the popularity that she is experiencing. I think for her, it's about being important and being right and being notorious. And I think she really is enjoying that. While there are a lot of people who recognize that she's on the wrong side of history, I think there are a lot of people who are stroking her ego right now. And I think she's really enjoying that. Do you think it might have something to do with her religion? I've read a Vanity Fair article by a Dartmouth professor who attends the rallies, and there's a certain group of Christians who regard Donald Trump as the chosen one, mm-hmm. and that he is like King David. He He's a messenger. He's divine in a way. Do you think Jenna buys into that? I don't know. I never really had a whole lot of discussions other than that one time that she told my my office staff about the Catholics not being real Christians. I never really had a lot of discussions with her about religious issues. I don't talk to most people about their religion. And so we never really had a lot of discussion about that. I do know that it's something that she feels is very important that people know about her because it's all over everything that she does. And so it seems to be, I don't know if it's something that's important to her and so she expresses it or she expresses it because she wants people to think that it's important to her. I don't know, but I do think it plays a role in all of this. I don't know how it informs what she's doing right now. I think she likes that people think that she's really pious and she may actually be pious, but I think she likes that people think that she is. Right. But do you think she's capable of putting on a persona? Yes. Yes, I do. And for all our criticisms of her, she can get up before a camera, speak in complete sentences. She would pass any test. But when you add up what she says, it's often a bunch of gobbledygook. That's just my experience. Oh, yeah. She she is able to go on to all of these talk shows and spout off all of the party line. And when you go back and you look at it, it really wasn't anything, but she's really good at sounding like she has something to say. But she's very also very, very good. And I think it's very important for this administration. She is very good at avoiding the questions that she has asked and not looking like she's necessarily avoiding the questions that she's asked. She's very good at that. She absolutely is. Do you think what she's doing is unethical? I'm the guy who brought that up in the New York Times article, and I was heartened to see that so many of the comments agreed with me. And after I talked to the New York Times guy, a bunch of legal scholars in the Washington Post said what these attorneys are doing is not right, but you are one of the great attorneys in Colorado, Stephanie Stout. What say you? I have thought about that, and I think that the issue that I see is that she is making a lot of statements that are not true, and she's doing those colored by the fact that she is a licensed attorney in Colorado. Because my understanding is this is the only state where she's licensed. Uh, she may be licensed in other states. I'm not aware of that. 
but she is able to get onto all of these shows and get into these positions and make these statements because she has that license. And I think that that causes a problem. It's hard to imagine that she doesn't know that the things that she's saying are not true and that she's misleading people. And that, that's hard to imagine that she doesn't know that. And right. she's able to do that. And she's able to have credibility as Trump's lawyer and as senior legal advisor to the Trump campaign because of her law license. And so I do think that there are some ethical issues there. I don't practice in front of the Attorney Regulation Council. I don't know how they make their decisions, but it does seem like there's there's certainly something there to look at. And, and I maybe they have. I don't know. It's a slippery slope. Both you and I, I'm sure, love the First Amendment, but there is a rule that we're supposed to be honest, even especially when we're representing a client. You can't go too far. Donald Trump can never be a lawyer, but she's doing a Donald Trump. Everybody knows the election was rigged. Do I count? I don't know that the election was rigged. I think it was fair. I believe Chris Krebs. So... Anyway, I think also constantly going out and saying things like, you know, there's fraud where and then they go into court and they don't allege fraud and saying we have all of this evidence, but then going into court and not presenting any evidence because you know, lawyers know that we can't walk into a court and say the same kinds of things that we can say in the general public because then we really are in trouble. And that's where I think that there's some some problems there because she's saying things in the public and trying to sway public opinion based on the fact that she is the president's lawyer that aren't being said in court. And there has to be a reason that there aren't being said in court. And the only reason as a lawyer that I can think of is because they know that they can't ethically go into court and say those things. So that's where I think that there's some issues there. I think you're right. Her response to you and I being quoted, she dismissed you as a feminist liberal. Do you plead guilty? Extreme liberal Democrat feminist. Yeah, I, I will. I'll, I'll just stand right up and claim that right now. And I don't. And I think she thinks that was an insult. And I, I don't think it was an insult. No member of my family who's read that has thought that it was an insult. I, I will stand up and proudly proclaim liberal feminism every day of the week. It's, it's the reason I've been able to have the career that I have. And then she said that her two colleagues, you and me, were Trump haters. How do you feel about that label? I'm kind of okay with that. I have never been a fan of Donald Trump. I, I have thought that he was the wrong choice for this country from the very beginning. I think he's been a disaster. I don't think he's done much of anything that has been positive. And I am glad to see him leave in, what, a month? I will be very glad to see him leave, whether that's on his own or escorted out of the White House. But I'm okay with that label. I, I've never been a fan. That just shows how smart you are. <laughs> I've grown to disdain the man. My mom had taught me not to say you hate anybody, but it gets pretty close. And I, I did post I disdain him, but God bless Jenna Ellis because she ripped me to her Twitter audience saying, he lost his radio show and most of his audience, and now he's a podcast host because he hated Trump. 
And it's like, well, you're right. I did lose my radio show on Denver Trump Radio because I hated Trump. Thanks for publicizing not only that fact, Jenna, but this podcast so everybody can listen to me and Stephanie Stout talk about you. Yeah, I think if you look at the statements that she's made, she doesn't always think through everything that is going to be a consequence of her statements. Like the ones that she made about Donald Trump in 2016, where she called him an idiot and said that he uh, was totally unsuited to run this country and that you should never vote for him. And then a few months later, she's singing his praises everywhere she possibly can. I, I think that... She doesn't sometimes think through the consequences of what she says in the moment. Well, I mean, Trump must have some skills. That was before she met him personally. I think Donald Trump, like most mobsters, prey on people's vulnerabilities. He may have known about her personal life or something that gave him an edge. And I think Giuliani's like that, Sidney Powell. And Lynn Wood has gone off his rocker read the Mother Jones article about him, but I don't know any of those guys, although I have met Lynn Wood. But Jenna, how does this end for her, Stephanie Stout? Let's end our interview that way. I don't think it ends well. I think Donald Trump will end up running the bus over her. He kind of already did with NBC saying, these lawyers are making me look foolish. And Chris Christie went on Sunday and said, that Jenna's team was national embarrassment. When he loses all these court cases, he's going to say, well, of course, I didn't have great lawyers. Read the New York Times. Look at what Stoughton Silverman said about Jenna. What do you think? I, I think that it's going to end one of two ways. I think either she's going to be completely out, and um, like you've said, or I think she's going to end up on one of these really, really right-wing news programs on like OAN or something like that. But I think that you're right that I think Trump doesn't keep her around because he always has to blame someone else when he fails. And I think Jenna and Rudy are going to be the people that he blames. And he has a much longer relationship with Rudy and so if he has to blame somebody, it's going to be it's going to be someone like her, if not her specifically, that, you know, they're they're the reason that. And I think he's going to come out to all of his supporters and be like, these people are the reason that you don't get to have me. They stole me from you. Mm-hmm. And so you can blame them. So you don't have to blame me. And I think on December 16th, the day after the Electoral College votes, I don't know that she has much use for the campaign anymore. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to her. I don't know that a legal career really even seems to be what she wants at this point. I I think that she's enjoying her notoriety, and it's very hard to have that kind of notoriety as a lawyer. Um, You've got to be like Johnny Cochran or something to have that kind of notoriety. Right, but then you have to deliver, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I don't see that in her future. I I see more of her going on and possibly becoming like a legal commentator for one of these right wing news places like OANN or one of those that that's what I, I think will probably happen with her. I don't see her as being Trump's personal attorney into his life as a private citizen. I could be wrong. Right. And some of Donald Trump's lawyers end up disbarred, like Roy Cohn, in prison, like Michael Cohen. 
it'll be interesting to see what happens next with Jenna. But speaking of interesting, you are an interesting person, Stephanie Stout. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You. We never met until we were in the New York Times together. I called you and I'm just delighted that you've responded. And we have our free speech rights as well. Do you give out your Twitter handle or do you prefer anonymity there? I have a Twitter handle and I've never actually tweeted. I signed up for it so I could read other people's tweets. (laughs) You're a lurker. You're a lurker. I am. I'm a total lurker. I have never tweeted. I think I have like six or seven followers on Twitter. I'm happy to give it out if anybody wants it. It's um, it's Steph underscore Stout, S-T-E-F-F underscore Stout. If, uh, but I, I, I guess maybe I need to start tweeting. Well, um, I'm going to tweet. And so it's Steph <laughs> underscore Stout. And I'm going to tweet inviting people to come on and listen, including Jenna Ellis. And Jenna, if you're out there, You too are welcome back in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I hope you enjoyed it, Stephanie. Have a great weekend. I did. I did. Thank you. You as well. It's been been fun. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LawLLC.com. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what, what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer. My father, a Denver lawyer. My grandfather, a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to The Fred Silverman Show. 
What a thrill to welcome back a friend of the show, Jeff Mason, hails from Colorado. If you didn't know that, you're missing part of the biggest story in the world. Jeff Mason's been following Donald Trump for a great news outlet called Reuters, and you've seen him, you've heard him. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Craig. Thanks for having me. Tell everybody about your Colorado roots. Well, I grew up in Colorado. Actually, I was born in Germany because my dad was in the Air Force, but we moved to Aurora when my brother and I were two years old. And then we stayed in Aurora until my high school years and moved to Littleton when I was 14 years old and my parents are still there. So I'm a Colorado kid through and through. What high school? Heritage High School. Class of? Class of 94. Oh, what a youngster you are. But I assume now you live in the nation's capital, do you? I live in Washington now. Yes, I do. What's that like? Do you want to live on the East Coast or do you want to come back to Colorado someday? You know, that's a great question. I like living where I do because I like my job and I like the work that I have out here. But my heart is definitely a good piece of my heart is certainly still in Colorado. And I can see coming back someday. Probably not anytime real soon, but definitely haven't ruled it out for someday. Well, you would be welcome back. You've lived through modern history. Thank you. Have you been there for the whole Trump term? Yes. I've been covering the White House for Reuters since the first day of actually the last couple of weeks of President George W. Bush's term and then the entire eight years of President Obama's uh, presidency and now the almost entire four years of President Trump's presidency. Oh, my gosh. I did not realize you've been there so long. You have the whole sweep of history, but there's never been anything like Donald Trump in the Oval Office, has there? I think the answer to that is no. I mean, I have the perspective of having covered two presidents now, as I said. I can't go back further in history than that, but just as a, a student of history and as a working journalist, I think it's very easy and fair to say that President Donald Trump's presidency will go down as one of the more unusual and historic ones, historic in quotation marks, for a long time. Right. And you don't come at it lightly. As I recall, you and your twin brother studied a lot about United States presidents, and you were into that sort of thing growing up, right? We've both always been into history, yeah. And I studied journalism at Northwestern. So I left Colorado to move to Chicago and haven't lived in Colorado since then. But yeah, the current events were something we were always interested in growing up. And it's what I dedicated my life to and and professionally is um, writing about them. And you keep making history because you've had some legendary exchanges with Donald Trump just about a week ago as he was coming out of his funk finally communicating with people. It was on Thanksgiving Day that Jeff Mason, hailing from Colorado, working hard, was in the room trying to figure out whether Donald Trump will leave office if he acknowledges that he's ever defeated. Tell everybody about that memorable Thanksgiving past. Well, yes, that was just Thanksgiving Day uh, last week. The president had not taken questions from reporters since election day, which had been, you know, two and a half weeks or so. And a lot had happened since then. President-elect Biden secured 
his election win several days after November 3rd. And President Trump has still not conceded the election and his campaign has been challenging the results and seeking to overturn them in, in multiple states around the country. So we wanted to ask him about that. And it's also kind of unusual for President Trump not to take questions from reporters. So the fact that it had been a while also just led us to have some, some pent up list of questions. And the key one was the one that I ended up asking that day, which was if the Electoral College votes for Joe Biden on December 14th, which it will, will you concede the election? And he started to answer it by saying it would be very difficult to concede and repeating his unsubstantiated allegations of fraud. And then I asked it again, and he sort of went in a different direction again. And, and so I, I pressed him on it and that led him to sort of lose it with me. Right. Now, for the record, how much do you weigh? How much do I weigh? (laughs) I'm not, I'm not putting that on the record. That's all right. (laughs) But Donald Trump gave you a compliment. He called you a lightweight. So you must be thin and in great shape. Yeah. I don't think he was referring to my physique with that, but he has used that as a pejorative way to describe people before. I know it, but what's it like to be on the receiving end? This is not your first encounter with the man, but I thought it was very revealing, which is what your job is, to press the man who works for all of us and get some answers about whether he's going to vacate the White House. And God bless you for doing it. And he was pissed at you. How does that feel in the moment? Well, it's unusual to be in the moment. I'm not somebody who likes to be yelled at by anyone. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. But that aside, I was just doing my job. And it's our job in moments like that. And uh, in any moment with any president to ask good and uh, relevant questions and to press for answers. And that's what I was doing. I don't know if it was the top encounter you've had with Donald Trump. There have been so many. Joe Biden has just announced that when he becomes president, he's going to order face masks for 100 days on all federal facilities, which includes the White House. Donald Trump has consistently belittled you, Jeff Mason, for wearing a face mask, not once, but several times, including in the Oval Office. Talk to us about that. It turns out you are, of course, in the right. He's in the wrong. And nobody has made the point better than you have. Well, I haven't made a point other than just keeping mine on. But I guess in some way that has made a point. I mean, the guidelines from public health professionals are to wear masks when you're in groups. And that's what I've been doing and and most journalists have been doing who cover the White House for months now. So, yeah, there have been a few times when the president has asked me to take off my mask or given me a hard time for leaving it on. I've left it on. And that's just because that's, you know, in most of in all of those cases, I was around other reporters, even if I was more than six feet away from from President Trump. But it's not just about that distance. It's about the distance around other people. And you're right to say former vice president, now president-elect Biden is making masking a part of the the new policies that he will be bringing in. And I'll tell you, Craig, it is actually kind of astounding now, this long into the pandemic, to walk around some government buildings, which I have the, the privilege of doing as a journalist at the White House and the old executive office building next door, if I happen to be covering an event there or attending something there, how few people are wearing masks. 
And President-elect Biden making that a mandate will almost certainly have an impact. And I think that's the reason he's doing it. But you guys have control as White House correspondents of that small briefing room. I've been there. People are surprised how small it is. I was. I've seen your quarters there. They are tight. And Jonathan Carl and people like you, isn't there a mandate that you control that room with the social distancing and people are supposed to wear masks? Well, control is probably not an entirely an accurate word, but it's close. The White House Correspondents Association, which I used to be the president of at the beginning of President Trump's term, and my successors have had, and predecessors, I should say, along with the board of the Correspondents Association, have some control over that room in terms of setting the seating chart and negotiating on behalf of the press corps with the White House. And the WHCA has set a guideline or rule that people who are in the press room should wear masks. And reporters have, but there have been some, you know, there are cases where administration officials come in and don't wear masks. And you can see sometimes the photos of briefings that people who come in and sit sort of to the side of the podium are not wearing masks. And we can't control that. So I guess that's why I would put control and quotation marks there. But yes, the press and the body that governs or govern is too strong of a word, but that that leads helps lead the press corps in, in the form of the Correspondents Association has set those those guidelines and and they are they are followed. Well, they should be. I mean, there have been clusters, outbreaks at the White House. It must be scary to work there. And just this week, Kaylee McEnany's husband came in and refused to wear a mask. Wow. I wasn't there that day, but I, I heard that as well. And you're right to say that there have been outbreaks within the White House. There absolutely have, several, in fact. And I think we've been lucky in the press that there haven't been more within the press corps. But I would certainly say that that is largely because reporters have been very disciplined about masking. Right. You have to follow the better leaders. I've written about that. Donald Trump is not leading me. Fauci is. And it's good to see that Biden is going to rely on Fauci. But I don't expect you to weigh in on that because you are a reporter, not a pundit. But my God, one of the most frightening moments in Donald Trump's term, and there have been a lot of them, involved you and him again. And you were on a tarmac in Arizona. And I believe Donald Trump called you a criminal for not covering the Biden laptop story well enough. Yes, it was related to a story that he related to Hunter Biden, then former Vice President Biden's son. And he was upset. I had asked him about his strategy of calling Biden a criminal from the podium at, at the political rallies he was doing. And he responded by calling me a criminal. And yeah, that's. That's just another example of heated rhetoric that he's directed at reporters. I was the one in the line of fire that day, but I'm certainly by no means the only one that he has used that kind of similar rhetoric with. But yeah, that happened. <laughs> That's just not normal. And speaking of not normal, when he went around, well, let's go to another incident where you were part of major news. Donald Trump got in trouble for putting the arm on Zelensky. I thought he should have been impeached. You don't need to weigh in on that. But the guy is always using pressure on anybody he can. And there you were in the Oval Office again when he's conducting 
uh, signing ceremony of some peace deal in Israel. Bibi Netanyahu is on the phone with him. And then you ask a question and Donald Trump starts belittling you again for wearing a face mask. But at the same time, he tries to get Bibi Netanyahu to talk trash against Joe Biden and the election. And Bibi was at least smart enough not to go along with it and strong enough, I suppose. But that was an incredible moment of history as well, wasn't it? It was definitely interesting. And I I think it underscores how unusual President Trump's style of diplomacy is. I mean, number one, the fact that the press pool was in the room in the Oval that day and witnessing this phone call he was having with Prime Minister Netanyahu is, is certainly unusual. And then President Trump took some questions from us and and I asked him if I could ask Prime Minister Netanyahu a question. And you're right that he belittled my mask in his response to that. But then he let me ask the Prime Minister a question over the phone. And that's just kind of a fascinating way as a journalist to be able to participate, I guess, or witness history as it's happening. Right. You are part of history. What a front seat you have had. I mean, what's the top memorable moment for you? I mean, it's not over yet. It could be in Georgia this weekend. But what's been the most memorable aspect for you, the top two or three? You know, it's a good question. There are so many big moments over the last four years, or you go back 12 years for the the period that included Obama's presidency. One of my favorite stories from President Obama's presidency was the day after his inauguration. I was the late staffer in the Reuters team, and one of President Obama's press aides came down to our little office behind the press room and said, hey, Jeff, uh, Robert Gibbs wants to see you and a few other reporters. I assumed he wanted to give us a little briefing about something. And Instead of walking to his office, we walked into the residence part of the White House and right outside what I think was the map room, Gibbs stopped and said, out of an abundance of caution, President Obama is going to take the oath of office a second time. (laughs) And we walked into this room and there was President Obama and Chief Justice Roberts, who, as you may recall, they had both sort of flubbed their lines the day before. And there were only you know, maybe 10 of us in the room for that. So that was that was definitely a front row to history. I think with, and I've had, the, I've been very fortunate to have that front row seat all this time. I think one of the biggest stories of the Trump administration that sticks out, and maybe because it's just so recent and so relevant, was the night that President Trump was diagnosed with COVID. And I had also been working late that night and Reuters has an editing team around the world. And because it was late, I had told the editors who were sort of watching his Twitter feed when I went to bed around 1230 to wake me up if he tweeted that he had gotten a positive result. And less than half an hour later, I had gone to bed but hadn't fallen asleep. I got a call saying he's tested positive. And so I jumped up and sat down at my computer and, and spent all night writing because that was just such a huge story on so many levels. Right. And then when he came back and he went to the Truman balcony and did his Mussolini impression, were you there for that? I was not there physically for that. No, I saw the video, of course. You know, I think it's, and that's kind of a separate story, how he handled it and reacted to it. But I, I do think it's easy to forget now because he recovered and recovered really remarkably quickly. 
how serious it was. I mean, this was this is a president who is in the, the vulnerable age group who has some comorbidities by being a little bit overweight. He could have gotten very, very sick. And that would have upended the presidential campaign. It would have upended everything if he had not gotten better. Now, did you think about that the other day when he called you a lightweight? Did you think about saying, sir, you're a little overweight? I did not, no. Have you ever thought just as a parting gift when he talks trash to you that you talk back to him and say, listen, old man, I'm from Colorado. We don't take crap like that. I mean, has any of that kind of gone through your mind or are you, you are a reporter's reporter? It just would never occur to you, would it? It, it's, it's just not my job. My job is to keep asking the questions. And I also believe very strongly and feel this way that it's, it's our job to be respectful of the office and of the person who's holding the office. You always are. And you keep your equilibrium. You do your job. I think you are tremendous. Now you're going to follow the president to Georgia this weekend. What's going to happen? Well, Georgia is the next big political story for sure. Yes, the president is is going to campaign for the two Republican senators who are running for office in Georgia on Saturday. He'll be there and he is sort of an, in an it's it's kind of a question mark as to how helpful he will be. There's one argument that he will turn out the base, which of course he's he's very good at. But there is also an argument that the fact that he spent the last several weeks undermining the election results by questioning them, including particularly in Georgia, which ended up voting for Joe Biden, whether that might depress the Republican base coming out for these two senators. And of course, I'm sure your listeners know the importance of this race is if you know those two seats will decide who controls the Senate in January, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see what impact uh, President Trump can have and if this is his only trip to Georgia or if he ends up going again um, before that special election. No, it's going to be wild. And in the words of Joe Biden, it's a big effing deal. And Donald Trump can drive turnout, but he drives it for Democrats, too. I talked to my old boss, Norm Early, who's living in Atlanta, and he said he's got relatives who have never voted who are going to vote this time around. But he's going to Valdosta, southern Georgia, so he'll try to bring out his base. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I do assume that Joe Biden will be sworn in as president. I hope you get to stay. Do you have much of a relationship with Joe Biden? And what do you think of his incoming all-female communication team? Well, I covered Vice President Biden for the eight years of the Obama administration. So, yes, I know a bunch of folks on his team. And I traveled with then Vice President Biden to China on one of his trips there and to Europe and on some domestic trips. So I've yeah, I I spent quite a bit of time covering him during that period. And the people on his team are pros. And, you know, I, I think that there will be tension between the White House press corps and and the Biden White House, just like there has always been tension between the press and the presidency. So I don't I think it will be different. You know, I there's there's no question in my mind that we won't hear a president Biden calling reporters fake news or the enemy of the people, which is rhetoric that President Trump has used. 
But uh, that doesn't mean it's going to be without conflict, and that's okay because you know, reporters' jobs, as I've said a couple times today, uh, are to, to press and to ask tough questions. And whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, sometimes you don't like to answer those or to, to have them asked, but we will continue to do that. And it will be a much different presidency, but, but it will be uh, fascinating to cover as well. Right. That's why I go to Jeff Mason and Reuters if I want objective news. But you're in that room with One American News Network. Probably Newsmax is getting a seat. Even Fox News now, their prime time, it gives me a stomachache because I don't like propaganda. How do you feel sharing the room with partisans? Does it bother you? Does it give you a queasy feeling in your stomach when that gal from One American News Network lobs up a softball to Donald Trump? You know, I, I just won't comment on other reporters or other news organizations. It's, it's, uh, I, I have worked for Reuters for, for 20 years, amazingly, um, really my whole career. And one of the reasons that I have, have worked there so long is because I'm proud of the values that my news organization st- uh, stands up for. And um, it's certainly aligned with mine. That makes sense. And normally I don't like to criticize other lawyers, but when the New York Times called me about Jenna Ellis this week, I had to let loose because I think One American News Network and what Jenna Ellis and Rudy are doing, that's hurting America. That's hurting my family. I, I, it's an attack on democracy. I don't expect you to get involved in that kind of issue, Jeff Mason, but thanks for listening to me spout off. So, just to tell everybody the romantic life of a Reuters reporter on a weekend going down to Georgia. <laughs> what is that like during a pandemic? Is it frightening? Will you be flying on Air Force One or how do you get down there? I'll be flying in Air Force One. Yeah, Reuters is part of the, the press pool. So there are 13 reporters, journalists who travel with every president on Air Force One, wherever he or she goes. And Reuters has one of those seats. So it's not always me. I'm a part of a team and we take turns doing those trips, but I'm, I'm doing this one. And what happens is we start off at Joint Base Andrews, uh, which is right outside of, of Washington, D.C. And we'll fly down on Air Force One with the president and accompany him to his rally. And I think it's just one rally and then fly back. It's actually, it's a pretty straightforward trip, but it'll, it'll be in terms of logistics, but it'll be interesting because it's his first trip since the election. And it'll be fascinating to see what the dynamics are like. Oh my gosh. What a life. Do they feed you on that plane or do you have to bring a sandwich with you? No, they feed you. We're well taken care of on the plane, but we pay for it. And I think that's actually, that's, there's a misconception that I am always happy to correct that we're not flying on taxpayers' dime on that plane. Our seats are billed to our news organizations, and that's the way it should be, because we're not public officials. We're working journalists. And are you socially distanced on Air Force One? Not as socially distant as you would be when you're not on a plane. So we wear masks. We wear masks. Unfortunately, not everybody on the plane wears a mask, but the reporters do. The one advantage, if advantage is the right word, the one little bit of confidence, I guess, that I get that you don't get with commercial travel is everybody who travels on Air Force One gets a COVID test uh, beforehand. Well, that's nice. And the people in Colorado, we have to wait in line for it. And it's getting bad all over. I hope you stay healthy and well. I really appreciate you giving us a glimpse 
into your amazing life. You are part of history, Jeff Mason, and it's good of you to share it with the people of Colorado and the whole world as my podcast comes out every Saturday morning. Thanks a lot. Any last words to the people of Colorado? Oh, well, I thank you, Craig, for having me on. I appreciate it. And I do love my home state. I've worn a couple Colorado masks in briefings that uh, a few people have noticed that my mother generously sent to me. So I'm always proud to represent my state in that small way. Way to represent. Jeff Mason, safe travels. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that. I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Hi, Dave Gunders. What a great song you have this week. You like it? Yes. Full-time job. You got to like a full-time job. Tell us about your full-time job. I think I've always kind of put, you know, rebels and renegades up on a pedestal. And uh, he's a good-hearted renegade who barely self-involved. But anyway, he knows how to live life. Why do you keep saying he when you should be saying I? Isn't this? Well, not a- <laughs> it's autobiographical. Admit it. Well, I, can, I mean, you're saying that, not me. I wouldn't admit to anything like that. I didn't write this song. You did. Well, it's a song, you know. Take it for what it is. You, you have your own interpretation. How does the author mean it? Tell us the meaning of this song, Full-Time Job. Like I said, this guy's very self-centered. He, he likes to you know, do things just the way he, 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 he wants to. He's in, early in the song, he says, tell, tell the man I'm, I ain't coming in. He's not going into work that day. He wants to 
play his guitar and drink his wine. So not such a bad thing. Right. But who's got the full-time job just to make him happy? I mean, I can't help but think of another self-centered person, not you, Dave Gunders, a guy far <laughs> beyond you in self-centeredness, Donald J. Trump. And I'm thinking about Jenna Ellis, the lawyer I got to talk about in the New York Times. I read that interview in the Times and they, they were quoting you. I know. I don't like to talk bad about other lawyers, but here this woman is hurting our country, killing our democracy. And yeah, I was friendly with you, Jenna, but I warned her a couple of weeks ago. I told her, repent. That's language I thought she might understand, but I didn't <laughs> expect she would give up her full time job just trying to make Donald Trump happy in hopes of making her old friend Craig happy. I'm not paying her, but. Do I have a right to go after her, even on the pages of the New York Times? It's not like I called the Times. They called me. I don't think you were going after her. No, you were giving your opinion. It wasn't, it wasn't all scathing. What, what was your quote? I a lawyer said, with, with scant experience or scant... Scant I, accomplishment, I think. Scant accomplishment. Well, you know, maybe scant she Scant is that. more than nothing, right? Uh, scant is scantily clad. Hey, right. It can be a very nice word. <laughs> I want to talk to you I think you, about, you said it in a very I think you said it in a very nice way. Right, but then she tweeted against me. She said the New York Times failed to mention that this guy had a radio show that he lost because he's a Trump hater, which is kind of true. Thank you for saying that, Jenna. And she referenced the podcast, so I think we're having a lot of new listeners this week. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I want a lot of people to hear your voice. This song is one of my all-time favorites, and it occurs to me every song, every album, probably every lyric, it's a decision by the troubadour Dave Gunders. And you made the decision in this hard-rocking song to start really fast. To start fast. Yeah, I mean, you just yeah. jump right into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, it starts off with the with the line. It's it's a full time job to keep me happy. Yeah. Right. But it's it's rocking. You mm -hmm. got that crazy organ going. You got people yeah. playing rock and roll out of control. You're just We're an old loose. rocker. It is a rocker. It feels good. It feels good to play that one. It's kind of about a mad king. It's full time well, job to keep me happy. Sure. Yep. Yep. What are you thinking about Donald Trump? You know, the election was well more than a month ago and the guy still won't give up. And he's got a lot of people believing that he lost because of a fraud, that it's rigged. And Jen well, Ellis is one of the people telling. I know. It's crazy. Not something we didn't anticipate. And like we said on our walks and you would say on your show that, you know, thankfully there was a margin of error that has caused a lot of these accusations to ring hollow. I think so, but still a lot yeah. of people are buying it, and it's a big oh, yeah. lie. We're sensitive to that, but I also have to rest my case that this is autobiographical, this song. I'm putting it on Trump because <laughs> I have Trump on my brain, but go ahead. you identify yourself. You have a reference to being a troubadour. That gives well, it away. Yes. That's right. That's right. Living life on my own terms. That's that's a that's a long a long a far cry from from the full time job that our president is 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 practicing now, but a song can apply to many different scenarios. 
Right. And so, to Lisa yeah. Gunders, it might be her full-time job just to keep you happy. And she does a good job. You are a happy guy. Keep it clean, mister. That's why you are a troubadour. Thank you, Craig. Let's Always let everybody give a listen and get ready. This one rocks right at the outset. Thank you, Troubadour. All right. Take care. Well, it's a full-time job to keep me happy. Just do this for me. Go to my website at CraigSilvermanShow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. 
Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you can learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do. And my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do, and I don't smile all the time. But Dan Levitt is fun to talk to, and he will give you a great deal if you say, Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture, smile back, 303-829-2107. for the best possible deal. Tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LawLLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. What an honor to welcome Representative Stephen Woodrow to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Craig. Honor to be here. Well, I've gotten to know you mainly through Twitter. Tell everybody your Twitter handle. It is at Woodrow for Co. Kept it nice and simple. At Woodrow for Co. Like a politician. Do you remember when the Nuggets were playing in the bubble and they had that good run against Utah, the Clippers, before they lost to the champions, the Lakers? I thought the best social justice thing was Ronnie Millsap, who grew up in Montbello. He had on the back of his jersey, vote. And then underneath that was his number four, and then his name Millsap. So it looked like vote for Millsap. He could be a politician like you, Steve. (laughs) He'd probably be better than me. That guy's got charisma. No, you are young, you are upcoming, and I think you're making quite a name for yourself. Let's hear the Stephen Woodrow story, please. Go way back. Where were you born? I was born in suburban Detroit, Michigan. Long, long story short, my father passed away when I was an infant. I was about 16 months old. We, we grew up in a nice area, but things were tight. My mom went back to teach public school for 27 years. We survived on the social safety net. Having gone through that, it just always taught me that it takes a village. 
my father's younger brother, my uncle Danny, moved out here to Denver to attend DU for law school in 1973, met his wife, my Aunt Mindy, the first day of orientation. And so Denver was where we always came when we could afford family vacations. We'd come out to Colorado, and I'd get to reconnect with this part of my family that, that I'd sort of lost. And coming out here, we, it's just gorgeous. I don't know if you spent much time in the Midwest. I know, I know you have a long story history in Colorado, but you know, in the Midwest, this time of year is blistering cold, gray skies, almost blindingly gray. And so this is just where I always wanted to be. I applied to go to law school here, uh, but CU Boulder rejected me. And I went to my backup school, Chicago Kent, stayed in the Windy City for nine years. 2011 or so, 2010, we were coming out for a Thanksgiving. It was gorgeous, you know, jacket weather, walking around Crestmore, getting to be with my aunt and uncle and cousins. Also, my sister moved out here in 2000, and, and my niece and nephew are, and brother-in-law are here. So this is just the place that we always wanted to come to. It's gorgeous. There's access to nature and recreation. We're just so blessed. And so when the opportunity arose in, in 2011, I told the firm that I was with in Chicago that I was coming out to Denver and haven't really looked back since. And you have a beautiful family, at least according to your website. Is that true? <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I, uh, I am so, so lucky in that respect. My wife, Johanna, is way better looking than me. Um, that's what most people say. It's an objective truth. The kids are gorgeous. We're just so lucky. We love living here. We love doing really cool Colorado things. You know, I like to tell people that we camp, we hike, we shop at King Supers. It's a great place to raise a family. It's it's a wonderful community here in Denver that we have and really really the state at large. Colorado is a pretty special place. And it's because of, you know, a great combination of, of the place and the people. Well, you don't just live in Denver, and I am a fourth-generation Denverite, but you won an election. You represent Denver. Tell everybody about that. Yeah, thanks. I represent House District 6, the Fightin' 6. I like to call it the classiest house district in Denver. We basically span from Downing, north of Wash Park, if you run east, all the way to Havana. You know, so basically, you go Downing along 8th, shoot up to Colfax, to Yosemite, then and down to Havana, and you run Mississippi, Louisiana, all the way back. It's a really interesting puzzle piece. You basically have East Wash Park, Bonnie Bray, Hilltop, Lowry, Windsor Gardens, Belcaro, really, really storied Denver neighborhoods with Glendale sort of carved out in the middle. We are smart, we're educated, we have resources, but the coolest thing I think about HD6 is that we care an awful lot. The people in HD6 care about schools and healthcare and the environment, and they want a representative and demand a representative who will fight for those things. Gosh, I grew up in your district, and I used to ride my bike through Fairmount Cemetery because I lived just to the west of there between GW and Fairmount, and I'd go up to Windsor Gardens with my wedge and my putter and a bunch of balls, and I could spend hours there. Did you ever hear about Leah Robinson? He used to be the queen of politics in Windsor Gardens. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I think it's a little before my time. I can tell you in HD6 and any aspiring folks in HD6, Windsor Gardens is the place to be. I spent countless hours there working with the Democratic Club uh, for the past several years. So my, my story in terms of the party, I was co-captain of House District 6. That's a party position. 
And in that role, I got to work with all the precinct committee people, the PCPs, who really do the grassroots organizing of the building captains and block captains and just neighbors, you know, coming together to do the grassroots activism. I'm a big believer in, in the grassroots sort of approach to politics, organizing people together, getting them to, well, now in COVID, it's a little more difficult, but knock doors, post events, postcard writing, text messaging, phone banking, all those classic things. Man, you got it down. How old are you? I just turned 40. I actually turned 40 the day after the Democratic primary. So we had a really tough primary. There were several people in the race, but three of us ultimately made the ballot. And the other two gentlemen were very tough candidates and very tough competitors. And so it was a big relief to have the June 30th primary and then hit my 40th birthday the day after. Oh, I did turn 40. That was probably one of the most impactful. And it's been my observation that guys like you turning 40, it's a big deal. Are you feeling any different? No, I, I might be unique in that respect. I, because I lost my father when he was 32, my big birthday was 33. I don't know if you've had that experience yet. You know, when you outlive one of your parents, it's an eerie feeling, but it also, I don't know, I think it's given me some perspective. I really don't take days for granted. He passed away, by the way, of a hereditary heart disease called cardiomyopathy, mm. which I've inherited. I've had an ICD implant since, gosh, I think it's been 11 years. So, you know, to, to go through that and kind of see where it could lead, it just gives me perspective. I, I, I really take no day for granted. Uh, we're here to, to make things better. The theme of our whole campaign was better than we found it. And it comes from my upbringing and love of camping. When I was younger, I got to go to Jewish summer camp, and I absolutely loved it. And the big message was always, when you go to the campsite, you leave it better than you found it. Not just as good, but better. It means that you might be picking up other, other people's trash, you might be cleaning up other people's messes, and that's okay. The point is, is you want to ensure that the next group of folks who comes along gets to enjoy the opportunities that you've had. And so I've really taken that philosophy and applied it to our political life and down under the dome. You know, with everything we do, we're asking ourselves, is going to leave it better than we found it? And so it's, it's kind of cheesy, but so is much of politics. You've got it going on. You know, when I turned 40, I had such a midlife crisis that I decided to run for office in Denver, competed as an unaffiliated candidate against my buddy Bill Ritter, the incumbent Democrat. And it was wild, but in the end, I lost, and I had to embark on private practice. So that was my 40th year, but it was great experience, and I know a little about Denver and its politics. In fact, once I was a surrogate for Norma Early in a mayoral debate against Wellington Webb at Windsor Gardens, and I think it's fair to say that he kicked my ass, first of all, saying, where's Norm? Why did he send this guy? And I have a lot of memories like that. But you achieved victory. Tell us about the closed primary race. And that must have been the contest because only Dems went in Denver. And who competed against you? And how did you win? We knew that the primary was going to be the fight, like you said. I mean, ultimately, in the general, I was able to get over 70% of the vote. So, yeah, it really came down to the primary. The other two gentlemen, we had Dan Himmelsbach a longtime retired Denver mediator and lawyer, very sharp guy, ran a really good race, you know, has, has a lot of friends in HD6 and, and a lot of ties that go back a long time. 
The other candidate was another really great competitor, Stephen Pallas, is a great guy, lives in, in Hilltop, he's a Jewish lawyer, which made it interesting uh, to have two Jewish lawyers. With a name like Pallas, how could he not be Jewish? But what about Woodrow? How did you become Jewish? You know, I have two boys, just like you do, according to your website anyway, but my youngest, he said, Dad, what's a Jewish last name? How would you answer that? This was a product of coming over from Eastern Europe. I, I believe the pronunciation was probably Vidro or Vidra. And, and we've tried to go back a little bit. My uncles tried to hunt that down and trace Vidra's back a little bit. But, you know, it's a story of so many uh, immigrant families that come to America. You stated a name and the person said, welcome to America, Mr. Woodrow. <laughs> And is that what you will tell your boys? Because someday they may ask you because they'll hear something about, oh, you can identify a Jew by his last name. So I told my son, Silverman, that's a Jewish last name. Cohen, Hayton. But Woodrow, you could get into Denver Country Club with that one. (laughs) You know, I I haven't applied, but it is a, a fairly anglicized name. It's interesting, though, growing up Jewish, being in these times, trying to lead in these times. As you know, when, when, you, when you grow up you know, with a Jewish upbringing, there's, there's a tremendous focus on our history and our story. And especially in, our, in your generation and mine, there's the looming specter of, of the Holocaust, which brought all those historical tales of, of Jewish oppression to life and brought it into our very recent history. And it's something that we grapple with to this day. And I think it really impacts our perspective on modern events and the lens through which we we tend to view things. I think we have a special sensitivity, and I got that from my parents who were old enough to be teenagers during the Holocaust. You are much younger, but it would probably be your grandparents to the extent you knew them. And I'm so sorry about your dad passing away when you were young. I appreciate that. My grandfather served in World War II, not overseas, but here uh, stateside. I actually took a class when I went to Michigan called Why Grandpa Went to War. And the prereq was that you had to have a grandfather who served in World War II or the professor would find you one of his friends. And it was the greatest class I think I ever took. I got to sit down with my grandfather for 14 hours and interview him from the day he was born to the day he got out of the service. And then you had to write a paper about it. And it's just fascinating. You hear what life was like, you know, at least, you know, stateside while all these things were happening overseas. And and you realize, you know, if he wasn't here, you know, if, if it's the family hadn't made it, you know, to North America, he would have perished in a camp somewhere. Right. And these days, it's appalling how so many of the newest generation, I'm not sure what they titled them, but your kids, my kids, they don't know about the Holocaust, where we learned about it, but I still have more to learn. And I think a lot of us have gone to the history books given current events in America, and we will get to that. And we do have this special sensitivity. But let's take a break right now. And when we come back, let's talk about this special session you just participated in. Now the people know Stephen Woodrow. I'm excited to talk to this guy. I have a feeling this guy is going far. Representative Stephen Woodrow, when we come back. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. And subscribe to The Craig Silverman Show podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, 
Don't quit on democracy. Be a part of this historic moment. Connect with us on social media at C. Silverman Show. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. And now we're back. Representative Woodrow, tell me about the special session. Did you guys get real stuff accomplished? Did you feel like the people of Colorado will benefit? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. Um, so your listeners know the governor called us in for a special session specifically to address the economic crunch that so many Coloradans are feeling right now. It's on a personal level. People's businesses are closing. People's hours have been cut if they're lucky enough to work. Working conditions for many are dangerous, uh, you know, with this raging pandemic. And unfortunately, on the federal level, Congress has simply failed to act. Uh, that initial round of stimulus only went so far and people are seriously struggling. So yeah, we came back under the dome and in three days we were able to pass 10 bills and it's real stuff, $100 million for emergency disaster relief, $60 million for affordable housing, a million dollars of that is gonna be for eviction defense. And by the way, with that housing bill, we're talking about direct payments to tenants and mortgage holders, homeowners, and it's also for landlords. There's a pot program for landlords to actually apply on the tenant's behalf to keep them housed. So we're really excited about that bill. We had bills for uh, broadband access, $20 million to expand broadband access, $5 million for utility payments and relief, and just a handful of, of other packages. You know, we understand that this is not a long-term solution. This was, you know, essentially bridge financing, a stopgap measure on the hopes that Congress can do something when President-elect Biden, you know, finally takes office. Because it doesn't seem like Mitch McConnell has much of an appetite doing anything until then. I don't know. We're taping this on Thursday. I see there might be movement. What happens if Congress cuts a big check for everybody in America, including the people in Colorado? Does that mean that Colorado citizens are, I don't know, double dipping? No, I don't think so. People are hurting so badly right now that it'd be very difficult to envision a package from Congress that actually you know, makes people whole. I think we're trying to help as much as possible, soften the blow and provide a cushion. And even if Congress were to act, it would take time. So dollars spent right now keeping someone in their home is worth a lot more and a much better investment than taking care of someone once they're homeless. So how fast are these checks getting cut? Yeah, this will be a matter of just a couple of weeks. One of the big things that we did was we utilized existing infrastructure in terms of getting payments out to people. So for example, on the housing front, there are existing housing authorities or housing organizations, nonprofits, that folks go to for housing assistance. Those organizations that have contracts with the Department of, of Housing. And so we're able to you know, fund those rather quickly uh, and get money out to people. And that's one of the reasons it works so efficiently is that there is a network and they basically say, People have come to us. The demand is there. We simply don't have the funds to make sure that we're able to cut checks to people. So who gets a check? Is there an income disqualifier? And what about my children? They're 18 and 22 now. It depends on their situation. I mean, in terms of rental assistance, it's folks who can demonstrate a financial impact due to COVID-19, which many, many people are able to demonstrate just given the economic situation. And then with respect to other folks, there's not a ton of guardrails that we put up on people's incomes, you know, like means testing. 
but you do have to show that you've experienced some type of financial hardship due to COVID-19, if that makes sense. I mean, we didn't spend too much time you know, saying if you make over X dollars a year, you're not getting anything. We really want to give money out to people. And it became a really interesting conversation on things like for small businesses, bars, restaurants, entertainment venues who are somehow able to, to, to still survive, the sales tax holiday. You know, the numbers that we were putting out were the first $70,000 in sales taxes would be waived for the upcoming year. And our friends across the aisle, you know, they really liked this idea. And so the debate became, how much can we afford? Can we afford to go much higher? Of course, politicians, the politicians, you know, they started proposing things like half a million dollar loans, which, well, would be great because of the state's constrained finances. We simply don't have the money. So we are putting it where we think we're getting, you know, the biggest bang for the buck. It's helping small businesses, it's helping homeowners and, and, and tenants, it's helping really the folks who are struggling most. It went really past the special session. Was it bipartisan? Did you guys bicker? There were some heated debates over amendments and things like that, but it was largely bipartisan. And, you know, I, I do want to say one of the things about our, our politics today that's so infuriating is that you know, on the national level, there's so much acrimony and just bickering and, and partisan fighting. That's not the state level, at least not in Colorado. In Colorado, we actually come together to get things done in a bipartisan way. Many of these bills were bipartisan. No one, as we're talking about, you know, trying to get more money to small businesses, was talking about socialism or, you know, government handouts or dependency. All that rhetoric is, is for, you know, talking heads. This was about representatives and senators coming together to say, okay, Here's the pot of money and funds that we have. Where can we deploy it most effectively? People are hurting. There was a shared sense of reality there, which was you know, something that we don't always have on the national scene. And it's really one of the most refreshing things about being in state government is that you put the BS aside and you work to get things done. Well, that's good. I'm glad it worked out that way. We all saw the picture of Larry Liston with the mask on top of his head. Was there any bickering about mask wearing? We tried not to make too much of bickering about it. Certain folks had their moments, but, you know, by and large, people were wearing masks. There were a couple holdouts who simply, you know, refused. It's a little upsetting. We tried not to make too big a deal out of it because it's become so politicized. But at the end of the day, we have a dress code. We require people to wear pants. Uh, we can require them to wear masks. I mean, wearing pants is just to, you know, avoid offending people's sensibilities. Wearing a mask is to protect their life. Yeah, it's a shame it became politicized. And a lot of morons say, don't wear a mask. Masks hurt you. And it's remarkable that most of these morons are also experts on ballot fraud, organized conspiracies throughout the nation. And that brings us to my favorite topic, and I'm quoted in the New York Times about Jenna Ellis, somebody I worked with for many years. And I read Steve Woodrow's Twitter handle because he's entertaining. And I encourage everybody to follow him on Twitter. And you had a tweet about Jenna and the rules of professional conduct that are important for lawyers in a highly regulated field. And you beat me to the New York Times punch, although truth be told, I did that interview a couple of days before your tweet. 
But regardless, great minds think alike in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. So tell everybody about your tweet and why you aimed your Twitter at Jen Ellis. Yeah, okay. So I, I've been critical of Jenna and, and really Trump's entire legal team. You know, I'm, I'm an attorney myself. I've been practicing for 15 years. I sue banks, financial institutions, telemarketers, and debt collectors. I've appeared in federal court. I've argued for the Colorado Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And one of the things that I've carried with me from, you know, back in law school is that we have a duty not only to our clients, but to the system and the profession as a whole. Part of that duty and part of the Colorado rules of professional conduct is that you don't engage in dishonesty. You don't make wild accusations that you can't prove. And that's exactly what they're doing. And Jenna, by saying that the president's correct and that there's been widespread fraud, is making a, a false statement. I believe she knows it's false, or she's making it with a reckless, you know, conscious disregard of the facts. And that brings the entire profession into disrepute. I know there's a, a million lawyer jokes, so it's like, well, how can we already tarnish <laughs> the legal profession? But at the end of the day, you know it well, we're officers of the court. And we have a duty to the court of candor and of honesty. We have a duty of honesty in our interactions with third persons and third parties. And so to just get out there and spread propaganda, it's shameful and likely it runs afoul of the rules of professional conduct. So I saw your tweet and I had already gone to the code to look it up. Not that I'm going to bring the grievance, but I think it's important to talk about it because it does not just bring disrepute to our profession, which we believe is honorable, and when you do it right, it certainly is, but it's destructive of our country and our democracy. It's the big lie. And I don't use those two words by accident. I'm talking Third Reich-like big lie, where you're trying to convince a bunch of people that an election for president was rigged and that Donald Trump got cheated out of the presidency. And this is a big lie that can lead to devastation of America. And I'm worked up about it. What about you? I, I think a look at Trump's most of his presidency and the time he spent running as a series of gigantic lies. I mean, he's told over 30,000 documented falsehoods. He's constructed an alternative universe. Kellyanne Conway famously said, you know, don't let those facts, we have alternative facts. And that's very scary when you concoct an alternative universe. You know, the purpose, you know, according to Gary Kasparov, is to get people to believe anything. Voltaire said it best, you know, if you can get people to, you know, believe absurdities, you can get them to commit atrocities. And I think that's what President Trump wants to do. He is a reality TV star. And so, you know, he's created a reality TV presidency. And Jenna fits into that. She doesn't have the legal experience one would expect to be on, a, on some legal dream team, but she's been cast in a role. And that's sort of how Trump approached his, his cabinet. Looking back, he was looking to almost cast people in roles as opposed to hiring them to do the best job. It's about appearances. It's shallow. And, you know, unless you want to engage in willful blindness, it's pretty transparent. And I think that's part of the scary thing, Craig, is that we're seeing a lot of folks who are otherwise good people, smart people, allowing themselves to be duped. And I think that's where we need to focus. We need to ask ourselves, why do people thirst for these falsehoods? 
what's so appealing about them that they would rather embrace reality TV than reality itself. What is the answer to that question? Because 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump despite all the signs that he's a nationalist and he's ruthless and all those many lies, the tens of thousands, to me, they were all a predicate to this, the big lie that really can be destructive if a significant percentage of Americans go along with it. And I'm resentful of Jen Ellis and people on Denver Trump radio who give oxygen to this bullshit. Oh, yeah. And it, it's certainly frustrating and scary. You know, at the end of the day, though, you're saying, what's the answer there? Look, I think to borrow a phrase from former Vice President Al Gore, the truth is inconvenient. Frankly, the truth is scary. Reality, especially right now, is scary. We are going through an unprecedented once-in-a-century pandemic. We've lost over a quarter million American lives. The spread is frankly uncontrollable. We have zero leadership at the federal level. Like I said, a man who has spun 30,000 lies, one of those lies being that this pandemic, this virus, is no big deal that it's just like the flu and you don't need to take it seriously. And the Dems and the media will stop talking about it the day after the election. Yeah, right. And another lie. It's a hoax. I mean, come on. How can 74 million Americans buy that crap? And that's what I'm getting to, and I'll get to the point. It's that believing it's a hoax, believing that it's not a big deal and not so dangerous is more comforting. It's easier. It's traumatic to accept the facts. It's traumatic to accept that we have no federal leadership as a quarter million Americans plus have died. That is scary. That's horrible. That's, that's something that's so mind-blowing, many minds can't deal with it. And so instead, they go somewhere else. They go to conspiracy theories. They go to the thing that tells them what they want to hear, which is, no, you don't actually need to worry that much about this virus. It's not that big a deal. Don't worry. You don't need to be anxious. Because the truth is, you need to be concerned. You need to take measures to protect yourself, your family, your loved ones, and your neighbors. And those measures are going to be difficult. They're going to require us to stay in our homes and not interact and not be social and not get to go out and enjoy each other's company and, and hugs like, like we like to. We're going to have to do difficult things and make sacrifices. And that's a thing that too many folks nowadays just say, I don't want to do it. I'd rather choose the comforting lie than the inconvenient truth. And it happens on COVID. It's happening with this election. I don't want to accept the fact that my guy lost. I'll accept these comforting lies of widespread fraud with no proof, no evidence, right? But I'll accept that over the hard truth that my guy lost because he says and does horrible, unpopular things, right? It's easier to accept that climate change is some hoax than to accept that we've done things to harm the planet we love and that we all care about. I'd rather reject that responsibility and just say it's a hoax and we can keep on polluting and not have to worry so much. And it really infects all of our politics. The denialism that we saw with, you know, the tobacco companies comes to climate change, it goes to gun violence. Why admit that guns contribute to gun violence when you can blame video games, music, Hollywood, 
a lack of mental health support, and a million other culprits, right? Direct the blame elsewhere. And so when you find a group of people who are thirsting for those convenient lies and you pair them with a character like Trump who lies habitually and all of his lies have the common denominator of telling people you don't need to worry about this supposed problem. It's not your fault. It doesn't exist. And to the extent it does exist, these people are to blame. Immigrants, Muslims, people of color, liberals, the deep state, fake news. The list goes on and on. That's Trump's appeal, is he absolves his followers of responsibility and blame, and he redirects that onto his enemies list of targets that he scapegoats. And it's intoxicating. And if you don't pay a ton of attention to politics and you just want to go through life saying, you know, it's, it's a bunch of noise and, and heck, people should just take care of themselves and everyone for themselves and I take care of myself and that's it, then, yeah, Donald Trump's list of lies is going to sound very appetizing. But for the rest of us, it's petrifying. Because for the rest of us in the reality-based community, we have to deal with facts and things as they actually exist. It's like having to do a group project with flat earthers. I mean, it's just, it's dysfunctional. Is Donald Trump a racist? Is Donald Trump racist? Yes, of course. But more than that, he practices the politics of white resentment, where you take folks and you tell them that these other people are to blame for their lot in lives. We, used to, we had years during the Obama administration when folks were, were fixated on terrorism you know, in the Middle East and fixated on whether President Obama would, would call out Middle Eastern terror, terrorism, you know, Islamic fundamental terrorism or, or whatever buzzwords they wanted him to use. And that politics of, of trying to redirect our, our problems and our energy you know, on the other, I, I think, has, has boiled up into Trump. And today he, he takes advantage of it. He knows how to exploit those resentments. Those, that feeling that certain people in America have that, they, that they're simply losing control of society. Do you think Donald Trump is an anti-Semite, a Jew hater? I don't know. That's a, a more difficult discussion. He hasn't been, yeah, I mean, there's always been stories about you know, him, him making anti-Semitic you know, remarks. But I think you would agree that that's a more difficult thing to discern. It is. But I think both of us are wise enough to realize that if he's a racist, it's the same thing. And it's leading the same direction. And it's not good for Jews. It's not good for anybody. Right? Oh, absolutely. Look, as a Jewish person, you know, you said before we have a heightened maybe sensitivity or awareness. That hate, when you start fanning those flames... When you start referring to Kaepernick and other athletes who kneel as SOBs and suggest they go out and get out of the country, or you tell congresswomen who, who are women of color, you know, three of them who were born in America, to go back to the countries that they came from, when you start fanning those flames and whipping up that frenzy, you know, migrant caravans coming to get us, refugees, you know, are like a bowl of Skittles and one's poisonous, that hate, it's like Frankenstein. You don't get to control that once the beast is unleashed. And it always, or, or most often, finds its way back to Jewish people. Just like in Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us blood and soil. Right. So it's never surprising 
when you see right-wing activists, you know, and right-wing forces out in the street you know, doing their protests, that their rhetoric certainly turns anti-Semitic at points. So what do we do about it? I mean, I wrote about it in the Colorado Sun. Election night was like a near-death experience. I mean, were you on the ballot this year? I think you were, of course. And your attention had to turn to national politics. And when you went to bed, were you worried? Of course, but I also, you know, it was one of those things where we had to take some deep breaths and realize that all the lead up to the election, we had been talking about how Donald Trump was probably going to look ahead on election night. That's why he was going out and saying, you know, we should just count the votes on election night and be done with it. And that's why he got the Pennsylvania legislature to agree not to count the mailed in ballots until the day after the election. So he wires that and he says, oh, what happened? I mean, come on. Right. Look, at the end of the day, I have hope. 81 million people voted for a president-elect Biden and Vice President Harris, which I'm so excited about. You know, that's approximately 7 million more votes this time around. We have to focus on that. We have to say that that's, that's tremendous. I mean, 90 million people sat on the sidelines in 2016. Almost 25 to 28 million of them have now come out of the shadows to say, no, we don't like this. We don't like what we see. So that should be the story, is the overwhelming rebuke of Trump. And if he wants to sit there and, and flail about and, and explore his options and, and peddle lies, he's going to do that. And the people who followed him to this point, they're not breaking with him. And of course, it's disheartening to see 74 million of our, of our fellow Americans witness the last four years and say, I'll take more of that. It, it's tough, but, you know, America's an experiment. We all remember the story of Ben Franklin being asked, what kind of government did you have and you, know, you come up with? And he famously said, uh, what was it, a republic if you can keep it. And that's our job, to keep the republic. Democracy isn't easy. It's activism. It's fighting. It's constantly pushing for what you want. Elections, you know, aren't the end of the fight. Elections are just the next phase. It's a constant thing that you have to fight to keep democracy because anti-democratic forces are always going to be out there clamoring for power. And it's incumbent upon the rest of us as active, informed, concerned citizens to do the work, to stand up and, and shout as loud as we can. No, you know, I don't really like social media. I'm on it because it's, it's a way that we organize. So much of it is a cesspool. But at the end of the day, in America right now, the emperor has no clothes. And we have to be able to talk with each other about that. We have to be able to scream that that's wrong. And we have to be able to make sure that the next folks who come around don't peddle the same type of falsehoods and lies. That is perfectly said. Let's take one more short break and we'll come right back with Stephen Woodrow. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can, they can deal with that. You know, I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart, 
and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. And we are back with Stephen Woodrow, state legislature. I think you're going far. What are your aspirations, Steve? Politically, just to just to serve the people of HD6. You know, I, I never really expected to be here. A little history. We had a great senator in, in Lois Court and a representative in, in now Senator Chris Hansen. And it was a surprise to many of us when, when Senator Court announced that she wasn't going to seek re-election. And so... You know, I, I didn't expect to, to be running for office, certainly this soon. I just want to be here and do a good job for the people of HD6. You know, as someone who got to actually serve in the party for a couple of years and, and really work with people on the ground, I'm accountable to them. I carry the memory of that service with me every day. And so my political aspirations are, are more to just get good bills done. I really want to work on some good public ed bills, environmental work, consumer protection. I'm a consumer protection attorney. So, you know, I'm very focused on that and focused on housing and privacy rights. So, you know, one step at a time and hopefully I can just do a good job for my constituents. And how do you see this political situation playing out? What's going to happen to the Republican Party? The Republican Party is going to be just fine. I've been around long enough to have heard moratoriums and eulogies written for both parties and they're always premature. There's always going to be a need for a conservative party in America. I do think that there's fissures in the Republican Party right now, especially in Colorado. And, and it's, you know, a question. Can the saner voices and, and the folks who care more about facts and truth and honesty, and there's, and there's a bunch out there, can they wrestle control from the newly elected congresswoman to CD3 and certain others who seem... And throw Ken Buck in there, too. So I'm thinking for the next many years, I see Trumpism dominating the Republican Party. I don't think it's going away anytime soon, even if Donald Trump goes away. There's Donald Trump Jr. and probably Barron Trump down the road, Ivanka, of course. So I think the Republicans have big trouble. They're being held hostage by the Trumps, and I don't see how they're going to break free. Yeah, I think Trumpism, though, is bigger than Trump. I, I think Trumpism is, is almost, you know, in, in the same bed with Palinism, you know, just a rejection of sort of difficult truths in favor of the convenient lies, big and small. And yes, this is a big lie right now, but, you know, the, the whole of the Trump presidency has been a creation of an alternative fact-free universe. Where you're allowed to get angry at folks who try to break that and try to, you know, actually interject some truth. And so, you know, I think that is going to be with us to stay for quite some time. It takes education, it takes resources, but, you know, persuasion politics sometimes needs to take a back seat to turn out. We're not going to reach everyone. We're not going to convince everyone that Trump lied and that Trump's is a bad deal. It's just not going to happen. Certain folks are going to persist in their falsehoods. There's a market for it. You know, the right wing talk radio largely exists to feed that beast. 
and to get advertising dollars and, and keep it going, to tell those people, you know, the convenient lies that they want to hear. And it's a shame because going back to Trump's, you know, legal dream team, you get Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and Jenna Ellis. You don't get Ted Olson and Jim Baker. I mean, just the caliber of people that we're talking about is, is completely different. And, that, and that's a loss for America, because while I'm not a conservative, I do admire some things about the right. I do like the ideas and the principles of loyalty and individual responsibility and you know, just, just caution and carefulness and, and the idea of, of conservation and not just being you know, so radically out there. I think the right has important messages to offer. I think the way it comes out and the way they formulate their ideas and what they've been trying to sell the past several years is a cruel brand of conservatism. It's one that allows folks to relish in their anger and scapegoat and, and reject sort of the responsibility mantra. It's cruel to other people. It's cruel to the kids who get caged on the border, but it's comforting to them because they get to accept these hoaxes and be told they're scapegoats who are doing this to them. And they hear that on talk radio. I call it Denver Trump radio. And unlike a lot of Democrats, you spend some time listening. And I think Denver's got a unique market. You know, I was on Salem. And when I came on, I thought, well, how bad can this be? It's not Rush Limbaugh. It's Dennis Prager. It's Hugh Hewitt. They're moderates. They love Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan. Gosh, what a different Republican Party it became under Donald Trump. And I would just say that I don't know if management controls it as much as the audience, because just like with the Republican Party, you feed this bullcrap to a base and they will come. They'll come to your rallies. They'll listen to your show religiously. And they won't accept anybody who has a different opinion. But that's my opinion. You're the guy who is listening all the time. What are your impressions? You're an attorney, so I'll give you a, a concrete example. I think that a breaking point for the party under Trump, a real solid example, is the contrast in answers given at different events between John McCain and candidate Trump back when he was running. You might remember the famous incident where a woman told John McCain that she couldn't trust Barack Obama because he was an Arab. And John McCain's response was, no, ma'am, no, he's just a good family man, American, who I happen to have disagreements with. And at the time, McCain, you know, you know, kind of kind of got flack from from all around. Colin Powell went on Meet the Press and he said, yes, you know, that's an acceptable answer. But, you know, the right answer, the, the best answer is, What's wrong with being an Arab? This is America. This is a place where anyone can come from any background and make it happen. That's the American dream. You work hard, you play by the rules, you ought to be able to do better than your parents did. And that's something that every child of every skin color, you know, race, creed, religion should be able to, to, to aspire to. And so that's where the conversation was in 2008 when McCain was running. And then you just fast forward to 2016, a person in the crowd tells Donald Trump that we have a problem in this country it's called Muslims. And Trump's reaction to that wasn't John McCain, and it certainly wasn't Colin Powell. It was, yeah, a lot of people are saying that. We're going to be looking into a lot of things. Just validating the question, validating that, that point of view, right, that we have a problem and it's these people, right? 
of, of, of this religion and, and this skin tone that we don't like. And whereas McCain wouldn't validate that, Trump completely validated it and fanned the flames and kept it going and kept anti-Muslim fervor going throughout his, his candidacy and throughout his presidency. And so, yeah, I think we've seen that sort of validation of the crowd. And so you asked, you know, is it management or is it, or is it the people? The question was always there. And those people are always going to be there. And they're always going to ask the question, the answer that matters. Right. When birtherism brought Donald Trump to the fore, I heard somebody say he was, it was Brian Williams on MSNBC who said that Donald Trump was the chief proponent of birtherism. But a lot of us in Denver think of Peter Boyles, who got a lot of celebrity and notoriety with that crowd. And birtherism against Barack Obama, that was an appropriate starting point. And at its core, do you think that was racist? Yeah, of course it's racist. And he tried to do birtherism again with uh, Vice President-elect Harris. That's one of his tools. He tries to otherize people and interject questions and, and illegitimacy about them. Questioning the birthplace of America's first black president is absolutely racist. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that, that that was how he ascended and how he sort of built his, his political chops. But it also says a lot about who he was trying to appeal to. It sure does. I find your Twitter feed appealing. You're a fascinating guy, Stephen Woodrow. And I think you're going to go far. And it sounds like you are going to remain active in public service. And I expect great things from you. Good luck to you and your family. Thanks for spending time with us. And let my audience know again how they can follow you and any parting words. Well, Craig, just thank you so much for letting me on today and, and for listening. Anyone can follow me at Woodrow for Co. If you ever need me, my number is 720-400-8107. Or you can email me at repstephenwoodrow at gmail.com. I'm happy to be here as long as the voters will have me. I mean, I think that we need people right now who are going to speak truth to power, who aren't going to be dissuaded. The kid in the story, the emperor had no clothes. He was lonely. He was shouting by himself, but he was right. And we need more people willing to speak truth to power, say what's right, even when it's difficult. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Thank you. Bye. Hooey! Now that was his show. I really enjoyed meeting Stephanie Stout. I hope you did too. Jeff Mason, friend of the show. Good luck in Georgia. Troubadour Dave Cunders, what can I tell you? You are a superstar. Representative Stephen Woodrow, I'm calling on you to be governor within, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Thanks for being at Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thanks for listening to my show. Same time next week. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.